0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Rev. Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center, on a cool and overcast morning in the heart of Koreatown. Yesterday I had the uh, privilege and good fortune of being invited to speak at Chadwick School, and I spoke to four different classes yesterday. The podcast you're about to hear now is the second class I spoke to, and they were reading the book Siddhartha and needed to do an essay on that. The teacher invited me to speak to the class to give them perhaps a better understanding of what Buddhism was all about. So what you're about to hear is that presentation, which turns out to be mostly questions and answers. A lot of really good questions, and I hope some good answers as well. So without further introduction my presentation at Chadwick School. So I was talking uh, with your teacher earlier and about this essay that you guys are doing, and it's really a difficult one because it's going to challenge you to look at life a little differently, and Buddhism does that for me as well. But let me tell you about one of my favorite books and a story about that book, and maybe it will help you understand more about the essay that you have to do. So one of my favorite books is called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And one of the reasons for that is because I do have a motorcycle, and I do a lot of the maintenance on it myself. But he was also a teacher in this book, and he had a class... And one of the essays he gave his class was, I want you to write about quality. Now, we all know what things have quality and what things don't have quality. But I want you to write about the quality of the thing. Where does it live? What does it look like? And none of the students could hand in the essay. They couldn't figure out where the quality existed, though they all knew it. Now because Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance had to do with motorcycles, this is what I imagine could have happened if the author of that book had been me. That the two primary characters took their motorcycles to a Kmart parking lot. Now one guy had a Honda and one guy had a BMW and the guy that had the BMW always thought his motorcycle had more quality because it was engineered by the Germans. So imagine now this really large parking lot and they take the motorcycles apart into their 10,000 pieces. And you have the Honda over here, and you have the BMW over here, and you give each of them a very powerful magnifying glass, and you say to them, please find me the quality of your motorcycle. In which piece does it reside? And then I imagine them going piece to piece looking for the quality of their motorcycle. And yet somehow when all the pieces came together and created one, quality seemed to exist. And yet somehow when the one was made into the many, quality couldn't be found. Now a Buddhist might say to you, where does your self live? Do you have a self? The Buddha would have said, do you have a soul? And if you think you have a soul, if you think you have a self, where does it exist? Well, some people thought the soul existed behind the pituitary gland. That's where it existed. Some people wanted to weigh the soul and see how much it weighed. And you know how they did that? They would wait for a person to die. And just before they died, they'd weigh the body. And then after the person died, they'd weigh the body again. And the difference between the weight of the living and the unliving would be how much the soul weighed. Isn't that odd? (laughs) If you were to look right now for your soul, you would probably come up empty-handed in the same way those guys with the magnifying glasses couldn't find the quality of the motorcycle. If you were asked, where does your self... in which part does self live are you that self is that self unchanging and independent does that self have a unique quality and if so why you would be hard pressed even if you were philosophy majors to define who you really are if self was the model in Buddhism, we say we are not self. We don't say there isn't a self. Yes. Have I stimulated a question? I uh, guess. Um, you know how you're talking about where would you find self? Mm-hmm. I don't think of self as a tangible thing that you can see or even weigh. Okay. I think of it as more than, more as. A thing that's developed and that is changing. Uh-huh. And I think everyone does have a different self. Okay. You're not necessarily yourself. Right? Okay. You I, can I uh, add some words to that to make it more clear for you? Could you say that maybe self is a process yeah. and not an event? Yeah. Okay. J- I'm just helping you out. Because mm-hmm. I had to think about that myself one time. So self is a process. Okay, so where does that process exist? Well, it exists everywhere, doesn't it? Is that process conditional? Does that process need certain conditions to exist? Now you have to say, well, yeah. Because if I didn't have a body, I wouldn't have a self. If I didn't have a mind, I wouldn't have a self. So two of the conditions we know for sure are body and mind that those are two of the conditions that create self. Now, has anybody heard of the creation stories? You know, I was fascinated when I first heard about some of these ancient creation stories. And the stories were, it was all dark and then lightness came. It went from darkness to lightness. And a lot of people look at that as being us. We came out of the darkness and came into the lightness. But you know when I read those stories, and they are in every major and minor civilization, you know what that reminded me of? That reminded me of self. That was the transformation of self from the darkness to the light. You know what I thought about for a long time? I wonder who the first person was that became aware of themselves in the way we are aware of ourselves. Who was that first person that became self-aware? Now, did anybody see The Matrix? Matrix, okay. Uh, It was a cool movie, wasn't it? I really liked that movie. And, you know, it was like about getting unplugged and sort of waking up to a whole new reality. Because all those people were asleep. They were like batteries. And all the energy coming from all those human beings who were asleep sort of fed the robots and the stuff. Man. But a couple people had woken up didn't they? And then they had a totally different reality. Well, can you imagine if you understand or believe or find evolution interesting that at one point as human beings we were probably like the dogs and the cats. We were living intuitively in the present moment and we didn't know how to think in the way we think now. We didn't know there was a beginning or an end. It was just happening every day in this giant process and if we were hungry, we'd try to find food. And if we were tired, we'd take a nap. I know the cat I take care of takes a nap all the time. And and that was sort of it. We didn't have to go to school. Cats and dogs don't go to school. You know, they just deal with what's real for them. Now, can you imagine if we were like that, like a Neanderthal or something, or even before that, and then one day we were out hunting, and something happened, and our consciousness shifted and we became self-aware. Can you imagine how that first person must have felt? And now they go over to this like pond with still water, almost mirror-like, and they look into the water, and they see themselves in a brand new way. They have become separate from the world around them. They are no longer connected in that primordial way we were when we were very small children. And I thought to myself, I wonder if each one of us is like a model of evolution. That we're born and we don't know where we are. When we're first here, we don't even know who our mother is. And we cry and the universe feeds us. Oh gosh, isn't that so cool? And our body feels uncomfortable and the universe changes us. And we don't even know why or how. And then all of a sudden, at some point, we recognize our hand. Where did that hand come from? Is it connected to me? Who am I? And who's that person in my life called Mom who's always there to help me? Where did she come from? That awareness starts to grow and grow, and we start to become more and more separate from the world around us. And then our parents take us to school and they want us to learn to read and write. And if you have a vocabulary of 10,000 words, you are separate from the world around you in 10,000 different ways. And you go, oh man, it is so scary to be separate from this world in 10,000 ways. And now they want me to do mathematics too, so I can be separate in a new and unique way. And everything I learned and everything I know keeps me separate from everything I want to be a part of. Wow! So for Buddhists, our first truth is that life is basically unsatisfactory because we're separate. And we have this underlying fear and anxiety because of that separateness. And the Buddha said, I want to teach you how to reconnect again to the world around you but you'll never be able to reconnect like you were when you were young because you reconnected in that way because you were ignorant you see but now you know all this stuff and you can't forget it you can't forget everything you know to go back to being one with everything so what you have to do now is you have to transcend all the stuff you know it doesn't mean you forget it it means you see how it's not you Everything you know, every experience you've ever had, is not you. In Buddhism, in the Zen tradition, they have a koan, a question that can't be answered with the intellect. What was your original face before you were born? And you would sit in meditation and you'd say to yourself, what was my original face before I was born? Did I even have a face before I was born? And you might say to yourself, gosh, I wasn't here for a really long time. And now I've been here for 15, 16, 20, 30 years. But who was I before I was born? And who will I be after I'm gone? And who am I now? And why is life so confusing? So if you aren't all the things that you learn and you think, then what are you? Yes. Thank you. If you aren't all the things you have learned and done, then who are you really, ultimately? What is your ultimate truth? Now, I can only speak from a Buddhist perspective, so I'll tell you what the ultimate truth is from a Buddhist perspective. The ultimate truth is this. You are really, always have been, always will be, interconnected and interdependent to all things. The illusion of being separate is just that. It is an illusion. None of us are ever separate. We are all brothers and sisters forever. We don't know it, though. As we wake up, according to Buddhism, as we become enlightened, like Siddhartha, we start to see that, yes, in fact, I am interconnected and interdependent. That self that I thought was separate, Is simply a process. It gives me the illusion of being separate, but ultimately I am interconnected and interdependent. There is a very big price to pay when that happens in your life. That is called the enlightenment experience. And if that were to happen to any one of you, you could never be the person you are now, ever again. You would see a homeless person, and you would say, That's me. I'm homeless in that way. How can I find them shelter? I need to find shelter for them because they're me and I'm them and I need shelter too. And if you see a person who's hungry and you say, I'm hungry now because I'm connected to everyone and everything all the time and if there's one person in this world that's hungry that means there's a part of me that's hungry now too. And if there's one person dying in this world, that means there's a part of you dying now. How can I make them comfortable in their transition while they're dying? Because that's me dying. Every time someone dies, a part of me dies. Every time someone is homeless, there's a part of me that's homeless. That's what happens when you become enlightened. If you've heard of this term, the bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is a Buddhist saint. The Bodhisattva is someone who's woken up to that ultimate reality of interconnection and interdependent, and their job, their only job now, is to be of service to others, because they are the others. They realize that through their enlightenment experience. Yes? Um, so, like, the opposites don't balance it out, like, so the person who's really like full, uh, like, if there's someone who's really yeah. full, balance out the person who's relatable? No. Wouldn't that be nice if it did? So you feel like one is supposed to You feel both. Exactly. So there's a part of you that's really full, but there's a part of you that's really empty at exactly the same time. That's the hard part to understand. All this stuff is happening at exactly the same time. So can we really have a tall and small if they happen at exactly the same time? Or is it something different? Yeah. Good question. Thank you. Um, how is it that we're brothers and sisters and how, how is it are, that if you're hungry, am I hungry yeah remember I talked earlier about that moment that we woke up we were sort of like in this primordial haze and that first person sort of woke up and became separate our language allows us to be separate our mind, our intellect our ego creates the separateness for us it's very powerful our ego It's our reality. Our ego writes the story of our life every day, every moment of every day. But what's behind the ego? Is it simply a process, like we talked about? Or is it real? And if it's not real and it's only a process, then what's the basis for that? And the basis for that separateness is connectedness. But not oneness. Now, does anybody know the difference between one and many? Well, let me tell you, because I phrase that in sort of a strange way. A lot of us think one is the best number. Now, I'm old. I was in the 60s, and one, for us, was the loneliest number that you ever heard. But when you look at the world, everybody seems to think one is the best. We all want, like, one world bank, one nation, one nation under one God. If we can become the one, we will have reached our perfection. But you know what I hear when people say, I want to be the one? I hear and see all the ones that are left out. Where do we put those ones? Well, sometimes if you're not the one, they have to get rid of you. That doesn't sound very fair, does it? Is one really the best number? Or perhaps is the ultimate reality of life the interconnectedness and interdependence? Is it the unity... And does that unity allow for diversity? Can we be separate and still be connected to each?